Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. I cannot tell you how exciting today is for me. I am with a man who has actually had a profound effect on my own life, the passage of my own life. I've been telling him that if it hadn't been for reading one of his books when I was 16, I would not have the life I have today. So I'm eternally grateful. I am with the legend that is Philip Pullman. And I don't know how to describe you, really. I mean, you're multiple award-winning writer um, and the brain, the genius behind Lyra, the dark materials. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> Is that a big enough of an intro? <laughs> it's very generous. Thank you. Yeah, well, I've written all sorts of books. Mm. Um, I discovered quite early on in my life that I was going to be a writer. I was going to be a storyteller. Really? Um, I loved always reading stories and telling stories and um, making them up. And when I was a teacher, when I left Oxford, um, I had to have a job because nobody was going to pay me to write a book before <laughs> I'd written it. So I, had to, I, so I became a teacher. Yeah. And I taught children of um, sort of 10 to 13 um, age range. And I told them lots of stories. I told them the Iliad and the Odyssey over and over again. I told them um, fairy tales and folk tales. I wrote plays to put on in the schools I was teaching in. So I've always, uh, and I discovered in doing that, I discovered what sort of storyteller I am. Okay. I can do some things and I can't do other things. I can't be, I can't make them laugh. I'm not a comedian. I can't do funny stuff. But I can do sort of, you want to know what's going to happen next stuff. That sort of thing. Okay. And I also discovered, especially through the, um, the, the plays I wrote to put on at school, that the, uh, an audience consisting of children and adults okay is the best one there is because um, it's a real challenge to make them all laugh at the same time or hold their breath at the same time or want to know what's going to come like or, or whatever the um, and it's not just a matter of um, doing some funny slapstick for the children and then some clever wordplay for the adults not that at all the idea is to make them all enjoy or, or, or to, to provide stuff that they will all enjoy at the same time because when you do a school play especially you're not just entertaining the children in the school, it's the parents mm. and the other teachers who've helped you with the scenery and the music and the dinner ladies who cleared the tables away quickly so you could have a lunchtime rehearsal <laughs> and everybody else like that. So um, to, to do something that they all enjoy and all feel that they it was it was for them, that was a, a wonderful privilege. And I was very lucky when I wrote um, uh, the first of the His Dark Materials uh, trio in 95 um, that was published to find 
little by little that adults were reading it as well yeah, as children. Absolutely. Well, that's yeah. what I find so extraordinary. I mean, you, you, you've actually campaigned about something I think is very important that you know you shouldn't necessarily with children's literature specify age range, oh, specify yeah. gender, because dark materials I'm reading at the moment to my children who are mm. six and eight. It's it's so complex, but you're not speaking down to the children. They are getting it, aren't they? Children children get a complicated story like that if there's a character they can follow whom they're interested in. And they're interested in Lyra and they want to be Lyra's friend and they follow it because of her. She doesn't know what's going on. She's puzzled and frightened and mystified by the things going on around her. So the children are willing to be with her and um, puzzled and mystified in the same way, as long as they can see that there's something happening and they trust Lyra to find the way out of it. So there's that. But I passionately believe in not saying this book is for six to eight-year-olds yeah. because you're going to put off children who might love it who are 10 years old and not very good readers. Absolutely. Or um, you're saying to children, uh, no, you're, you're, you're too young for this, you're not clever enough for this. And it's just, it's never true. Let the book find its own readership. Yeah. I always believe very strongly to that. And, I, I, and I, I got very, very cross with the publishers who wanted, in effect, to have a, a guard, on, a bouncer on the door saying, keep out, this book is not for you. Yeah. I don't want to keep people out. I want to welcome everyone in. And it's one of those things as well. I mean, I, I was intrigued because obviously you've got a female lead in Lyra, a, yeah. a young girl character, which if we look back across the corpus of uh, children's literature, it's not always the case to have a strong female lead. Oh, but know, again, Alice. It's a, Alice, is, Alice is breaking the world. <laughs> but you've got that thing, haven't you, of, of, again, people say, well, let's put a girl's cover on it because it's for girls then in that case. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. I hate that. But I didn't, I didn't sort of think about this rationally and politically mm. and say, oh, I think it's about time. I'll write a book about a girl. Not at all. It doesn't happen like that. Mm. Lyra came to me. She entered my head and it had to be about her. Gosh. Um, and I, because, I suppose maybe because I'm a man, I could write about her to a degree objectively. And I can say, instead of writing as Lyra, and I very rarely write in the first person. Yeah. Um, I could say, I could have the narrator, who isn't me, mm. but is another character, in a curious sort of way. Uh, I heard the narrator say of Lyra, in many ways she was a coarse and greedy little savage. <laughs> yeah. It would never have occurred to her to say that about herself. And, um, but the narrator can say it. So I'm, I can be objective and um, be sympathetic with her at the same time. Gosh, so she really was a complete character in your head. She, she must have existed in some previous realm. I mean, I taught a lot of little girls like Lyra uh -huh. with the same um, zest and vivacity and intelligence and sparkle and sympathy and so on. Uh, she wasn't based on anyone in particular, but there. But in the same way, she's not a special child. Mm. She's not mm. specially divinely gifted or anything of that sort. That's something my children are picking up on yeah. at the moment, actually. And it, it's something ordinary, when I read it the first time, child. I didn't see, but they're seeing mm. it that they can relate to her because she yeah. is, in some An ways, average. Child. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's such a complete world that you built, and we both did literature. At Oxford, and did you had to do old English too, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> Look at your face. Why not good? <laughs> it didn't capture you in the same way. No, it didn't. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I found it too hard, too hard, and not very clever. <laughs> You're obviously much cleverer than I am. Um, uh, the, I mean, I think there are two two works of literature in it. One is the Battle of Malden, and the other is Beowulf, <laughs> and that's about it, really. <laughs> so. Um, uh, th there was that, and then there was Chaucer, and then there was Shakespeare, and then the literature starts proper. <laughs> oh, we're going to agree to disagree on this one. Yeah. I do everything before Chaucer. Yeah. <laughs> but, that's so, but when you were being captured during your degree, when you were reading mm. literature, were there particular authors you just knew, they're speaking to me, they're not? 
Yes, and very often they weren't on the syllabus. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the syllabus in my day sort of finished at um, 1900. Really? Didn't do 20th century literature at all. Gosh. Yeah, it began with, uh, began with Beowulf and ended with, um, well, more or less with uh, George Eliot. Good grief. Um, so it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was very antique, the syllabus then. Okay. Um, I did, um, I always loved Milton. I always loved mm. Paradise Lost in particular. Um, and I loved William Blake. Um, but the other things I discovered for myself, really, outside the syllabus entirely, one was John Cooper Powys, mm. the 20th century novelist of Wessex, really. Um, I, I had a real John Cooper Powys phase. I read everything. I soaked myself in him <laughs> um, and didn't read the works I was supposed to have read. Um, the other person who had a huge effect on me, whom I discovered in the, in the town library, in the, in the Oxford City Library rather than the Bodleian, um, Francis Yates. Right. Yeah, whose book, um, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, yeah. I, yeah. I um, absorbed immediately and passionately. Gosh. Um, and that sort of let me in a little side door into the uh, Renaissance and the whole magical the occult, occult exactly. weird stuff that was going on there, Hermetism and so on. Uh, which I've always been fascinated by. Yeah. But that wasn't on the syllabus, I found it out for myself. So, yeah, because of course the occult, I mean, I, I've been eyeing this thing up that's on the table in front of us, but you oh, yes. have an actual Aletheon experience, yes. don't you? Now, I, I suppose I say occult, this, you've made, this is in, from your head, this object. Yes, Where but it's did based, you get this? It's based on um, a lot of Renaissance symbolism, yeah. which you'll recognise. There are 36 symbols around the edge of this, and what you do is you move the hands and point to three symbols which you've chosen to put together to ask the question you want to ask. Mm -hmm. And then you hold the question in mind, and then the other the little needle in the book. Yeah. <laughs> moves around and points to other pictures, which you then use to interpret it. And some of those um, images you'll recognize as straight out of emblem books from the Renaissance. Absolutely. That's what's fascinating. They are completely. And I mean, you've, this has been made for you, hasn't mm -hmm. it? I, I can't believe I'm touching it, but it's, it's gold. Yeah. Glass top. And then these have been individually painted with a single hair, haven't they? Yeah. On enamel, and um, it's a beautiful piece of work. The designer originally was the man, was the artist who did the cover for the first book for Northern Lights, who drew oh. it, who drew it on that, David Wyatt. Mm. And this, um, it was used as the basis for this, um, although this isn't in colour. But um, I, I pretend this was the original one, and the others are sort of <laughs> poor imitation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's the most incredibly beautiful object. Now, to create a thing like this in a work of fiction, to to visualise the object mm. and make it. Again, did this? You knew you wanted this in the book. No, I needed. Um, I needed a. Um, how to put it? I needed a sort of shortcut for Lyra to find things out. <laughs> a cheat's guide. Cheat's guide. <laughs> so I. So I just thought it up. But I've always been fascinated by the the um, symbol uh, symbolism and the iconology mm -hmm. or iconography. Mm -hmm. There is a difference, so I can never remember what it is. Iconography is the reading of the messages. Iconology is the, the cultural setting out of which that emerges. Thank you. Have I explained that nicely? Perfectly. Oh, no, no. The iconology and iconography yes. <laughs> of the Renaissance is something that sort of very much underlies that. Yep. I mean, it, it, this is what got me. The, the minute I started reading about this in oh, the book, really? I already loved Lyra. Mm. And actually, the opening sequence where she runs across not Exeter College, 
but Jordan College, yeah. but kind of Exeter College. Yeah. <laughs> that that lured me in immediately. But it was this, it was the symbolism and symbol reading. And, that, and that's what I went on to specialise in, in art history. Because well, you see what a profound yeah, effect you've had yes. on my life. Yes, well, I'm very gratified. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm glad it had that result because, I, I, I mean, I, I'm still fascinated. I'm still discovering things about the alethiometer in the, um, in the present book. And tell me about the present book, because well, this is all happening imminently, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The new, the new book is, uh, the, 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 the whole trio, the whole story is called The Book of Dust. Uh -huh. But the first part of it is called La Belle Sauvage. Ooh. And La Belle Sauvage is the name of a canoe, which is owned by the boy who's at the centre of the story. Lyra is, in a sense, the centre of the story. But in this first book, she's only six months old. So we have to have another character in it whom we can follow through and who will um, find himself, well, he finds himself responsible for Lyra at one moment in the book. And um, uh, well, I, I can't say any more than that at the moment. Yeah, you're already giving um, me so many teasers. <clears throat> oh, I'm going to be queuing up to get it. But I'm, I'm as I say, I'm discovering things about the alethiometer and about demons Okay. Um, as I go through. That's the first book of the series. The second book is going to be called The Secret Commonwealth. And it's coming out when well, I finished it. It's written already, but it's, I'm editing it at the yeah. moment. And in that one and the third book, Lyra is going to be 20 years older. So she's an adult. And um, that the, is one story which sort of arches over the story in his dark materials. Oh, so it's not, a, not, not just a prequel and it's not just a sequel. As I've said, it's an equal. Ah! And... Um, uh, that's what's going to happen. That you are looking at the face of the original sixteen-year-old, look, Helen. I'm so excited. <laughs> I feel I feel like I've gone back in time with excitement. Uh, but we have we're here together for lots of reasons. We, uh, I, I mean, I've, I, your world has fascinated me. The world you created of demons, the world you created of symbols, is absolutely fascinating. But we have a shared love of art. Yeah, indeed. And I first read a wonderful article that you wrote about Manet's *Bar at the Folie Bergère*. Yeah, and. Tell me how that came about, because that it's such a good article, and you get to the heart of a painting that I think is so central to the discipline. Well, thank you. That came about because the poet Ruth Padell, who was then the writer-in-residence at the Courtauld Institute, um, asked me to come and give a talk about any painting I liked from that wonderful collection, and I chose the Manet straight away. Because it's a fascinating painting, and it's, it's, a, it's a painting on the cusp of modern art. Yes. Really. And um, one of the things I found myself doing as I looked at it was comparing it with another painting, which is very well known, which is painted about a year away from it, so almost contemporary. The painting called, which everybody's, I'm sure, has seen, When Did You Last See Your Father? Mm. by Frederick Yames, the Victorian sort of genre painter, history painter, which shows um, a scene from the English Civil War. And there's a little boy being interrogated by a stern-looking roundhead officer. When did you last see your father? Who's obviously a cavalier and he's obviously going to be rounded up. And so, uh, so uh, that's what that painting is. And I pointed out that you could make a description of that painting, a verbal description, mm because everything is so clear and so unequivocal and you could say he's standing there and he looks like this and she looks like that and the little boy's doing such and such and then you give that description to an artist of equivalent talent to Frederick Games and have him or her paint do a painting which would be functionally exactly the same it will work in the same way what you liked in the aims you'd like in that what is effective in the aims will be effective in that and so on but you, you could you try that with the money you'd start and then within a sentence you would have to stop 
because you can't describe everything in it because it's ambiguous and it's equivocal. What is that little patch of grey? Is that is that cigar smoke or is it is it a flaw in the glass of the mirror? What is it? And and uh, and so on. And w- wait a minute, we're supposed to be standing on a balcony, but wait a minute, where's the rail? If we look across there, we can see the balcony on the other side, and that's got a railing, but. Where's the railing on this? It's, it's, it's a mysterious painting for those reasons, but the most mysterious and equivocal and haunting thing about it is the expression on the barmaid's face. Um, she looks tired. She looks fed up. She's been there all day long. She's going to be there all night long. She's being pestered by men who seek her sexual favours. Um, her feet are aching. Um, but, but, so what is that in, in her expression? You cannot describe it. There's no way you could possibly put that into words. It belongs entirely and only as a painting, as a work of art, mm-hmm. as do the um, reflections on the, um, on the tinfoil around the champagne bottles, as do the colours of the orange, the colours of, of, her, of her, her blonde hair. It only exists as a painting. It doesn't exist as words. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between an illustration, if you like, and a, and a work of art as a painting. I was going to ask you if yeah. illustration came into this. I mean, it's a painting that I begin all my history of art courses with, with my yeah. students, because it's a painting that is endlessly, uh, you, you can analyse it endlessly from you any point of view. And you can bring any viewer into it. So yeah. that there's that wonderfully reflected character that where, where the reflection is all, of mm. course, off kilter. It doesn't yes. work. That's right. But the idea that we are there, we are in it, and mm. we male, female, disabled, people of different ethnicities, yeah. every different viewer brings a different viewpoint back. It's yeah. an endlessly giving painting. But um, I was going to ask you if illustration comes in, because I think one of the things that's so interesting about making children's literature, and I know it fascinates you, that the relationship between illustrations, images and words mm. is profound, isn't it? You can have somebody who just takes the words and makes an image of them. And then you can have an illustrate. Actually, you've got a Quentin Blake down here, haven't you? Yes, but it's not from a story. It's not, but it's, he um, is one of those artists that can do it, can't they? Yeah. They can bring something else. Because I should say, of course, Art Detective listeners, we are in your house looking mm-hmm. at your amazing artworks. You have a best, you have the most extraordinary art collection and we have very similar tastes. So oh, I well. am delighted by some of the things we're going to look at. So if they all go missing, I'll... Um no, who's called the exactly? It'll yeah. be me. <laughs> Just come down and get them from me. But this is great. So this is this is Quentin Blake. Yeah. This is a um, and what would you say? It's a lithograph. Yeah. Um, it is. Check. Is it? No, it's an no, etching. It's an, it's an etching, etching, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. No, you can see. Yeah. Yes, you can see. It. Tell the sort of wiry line that you get in an, in an etching. In an etching. Um, I like it because it's a girl and her um, her demon really who right. looks, looks like a raven. And it's um, it's very Blakey. I love his line. I love mm. his wiry, um, exact, l- loose-looking line. To hear him talk about how he does his paintings is a, or his drawings is a revelation because he, he uses a light box. Oh, does and he? he? Yeah, and he, he, he does a lot of sketches and then he puts one on the light box. I then, did not know that. Mm. So he puts them on the light box and that's what allows, because it's such fine, I mean, that's what I think is so characteristic about him, isn't it? It's the fineness of, of the line. Yeah. And the angular, it's so angular. I mean, yeah. I, I love this because everything, you know, the breasts are sort of pointy and angular, yeah. the, the cheekbone is pointy. And she's got what they call a Croydon facelift. Yes. <laughs> she does. Very fashionable hairstyle, my dear. Yeah. But, um, she but, actually looks very like a character in my new book. Does she? Um, a girl called Alice. So you can um, visualise your character's... As, yeah. as you want the illustrator. Because this is something... It's dusty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but when you're working with illustrators then, t- mm. how... Is it frustrating when you know you can see them and you want the no, illustrators no, no, to no, capture no, never, them? Never, never. No, the illustrators I work with are terribly good. 
Peter Bailey, who's done a lot of my books, is a wonderful, and I, I never say, you know, he's got to look like this, she's got to look like this, and this drawing we see so-and-so. Mm. Um, uh, Ian Beck, whom I've also worked with quite a lot, is, is they're too good. You don't tell them what to do. Exactly. <laughs> and they, you don't tell them which images to choose. They choose themselves. The exception to that is when I did a, a comic. Ah, interesting. Um, a graphic novel, so to speak, uh, where I had to do it like a film script and say, mm. in this frame we see... John doing so and so, and in the background there's the ship sinking or something. Um, so the I was directing the artist quite closely there. I bet that's fun though. It was fun, yeah. great fun. Um, but that's I've only done one. Mm. Um, but that's uh, that's a different kind of thing. Illustrators are their own men and women, and they have to have the freedom to um, choose a character they want or a setting they want. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, you mentioned Milton and Paradise mm. Lost and also William Blake. Yeah. And of course, one of the wonderful things there is that's that relationship that when when Blake comes to illustrate uh, Paradise Lost. Which I've got in there. You haven't. Yes. You have just, I mean, your house is a treasure trove of things that I adore. Well, don't and tell you, anyone where I live. I won't, it? but when you mentioned, when we mentioned, oh, Paradise Lost, oh, Milton, oh, I, oh, I've just got a first edition of that out the back. <laughs> and this is it. Unbelievable. Well, I, I do love Paradise Lost, always have done, and um, I sort of collect nicely printed ones, and if I could, and, and a few years ago, somebody said that they had a first edition, and was I interested? Well, of course I was interested. So, <laughs> um, it belonged to R.W. Seaton Watson, and I think it was a diplomat or something around the turn of the century. Gosh. Anyway, first edition of Paradise Lost. Not the first, quite the first printing, but this is this is 16, an interesting 69. little public publishing thing. So there was no publisher then. Publishers didn't exist then. They were booksellers and they were printers. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, Milton made an agreement with uh, the printer, and the printer printed several sets of this, and these were to be sold only by T. Helder at the Angel in Little Britain. So, and this is this is this is what it, it's been rebound since then because. Yes, of um, course. Yeah. But this is this is what oh, and Paradise Regained, which is. Oh. Uh, can I have a Frankly, look? not quite so good. But, um, <laughs> In my honest opinion. Mm -hmm. 
but look at it. Everything about it. I mean, just, just opening on that page. Yeah. I love the fact it's wonky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the fact it's a, it's, it's um, got some botched bitch. It's, it feels so real. And to have, I mean, it's 1669. The yeah. book is yeah. it's old, a, it's, old, old. It's, it's a precious thing. And I mean, we're, we're both drawn to printing as a medium. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you feel the same way about about it as I do, that the intellectual revolution brought about through movable typeface printing is probably one of the most important things that's happened to humanity. It's the third. Okay, great. Right, go on. The first was language. First was beginning to speak to each other and um, uh, tell each other what had happened uh -huh. and then make up things that, that hadn't happened but might have happened. So talking and language, that's the first thing. Says a storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the second one, of course, was writing things down Absolutely. and making marks, whether in, in clay or on um, papyrus or on cave walls or whatever, making marks which would preserve the things that you previously had to remember. The third, of course, was printing. So you could make a mark not just on one piece of paper, but on hundreds of pieces of paper and disseminate them all over the place. And we're in the middle of the fourth. We indeed are. Yeah. I am doing, I tell, I'm telling my students all the time that we are in the middle of something so extraordinary mm. and we will only realise it in 50, 60, 70 years, the digital revolution. That's it right. is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's the fourth great revolution in human communication. Yep. And we don't know where it's going to go or what the results will be, but it is a phenomenal change. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've lived through, I'm you're much younger than me, but I've lived through um, a time when people still did print with hot metal. And... Um, um, now, you know, we think nothing of um, composing on a word processor and emailing the text of an entire novel down the line, and mm. and, and it's quite extraordinary. Well, I, I, one of the things I use as an example is when I started my degree, we didn't have email. When mm. I left in those three years of my degree, the university had started using email. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, where, do I not go to my pigeonhole anymore? <laughs> you know, how does it's this you're work? Right. It is a pigeonhole, isn't it? But it's, but it's the most, but to, to be able to pin it on that particular time of my life, yeah. it's such a big influence. And on art in particular, I think this is why I'm so passionate about continuing love for art history as a discipline, because mm. we are, we, we didn't have access to visual material in that way. No, no, visual materials were one-offs, or they were in books, or they were, you know. But to be able to I access I learned to imagery, love visual art at the age of 15 with a book called The Picture History of Painting by Jansen. Uh, Do you know yes. that? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what made you fall in love yeah, with it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and that was a nicely illustrated book, and it was, it was what it says, a history of Western art, really. It's, um, it's uh, a sort of... Um, Pocket version of Gombrich, I suppose you could say. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, but that's the only place I could see them then. Yeah. Um, unless I, on rare holidays from North Wales where I lived, came to London and went to the National Gallery, which I did all the time, and the Tate Gallery and the Courtauld, and, and so on, looking at real paintings. But in on, on paper, yeah. in reproduction form, that's the only way we could see them. Absolutely. Um, it, music is a slightly different case, but a, perhaps an even more interesting one. Mm -hmm. There's a fascinating passage in um, George Eliot's Middlemarch where she talks about old Caleb Garth, the, um, the, the, the what is he, he's a farm manager or yeah. something. He was a sort of touchstone of moral decency and honesty and good hard work, all those things. And she says she's very fond of music. And occasionally, um, when he had the time to do it, he walked 50 or, you know, 20 or 30 miles to hear an oratorio. Gosh. And you, you, that's the only time you could hear it. Uh-huh. You just you pass your entire life never hearing a symphony by Haydn or a, a somebody playing the piano. Mm -hmm. um, and yet now we can just, the 
goes to the, we can hear anything. Whatever. What an extraordinary difference that is. Are we better for it? Are we better off for it? Or are we worse off for it? it Do we value it less? It's, it's just going, it, it is to take stock of the revolution we're living through. It's, yeah. it's extraordinary. And, and I, I couldn't agree more. And being a medievalist, I think one of the things I find is, is that lack of access to things. That mm. people were, the majority mm. of the population would never encounter an artwork or you know, hear a story. You know, the, hear- the only time they would see it was in church. Yeah. The only time they'd hear music was in church, in church. the choral singing, and the only time they would see things would be the paintings on the ceiling or the carvings exactly. of, the, of the crucifix or whatever it was. Exactly. Um, but printing democratises, it, it, I feel. And I think that that's because you have collected prints, haven't you? I mean, this is largely what you've got in terms of prints and drawings art, yeah. prints and drawings and i want to get back to some art so shall we yeah, pick, sure. shall we pick another one yeah, to talk yeah. about i can't believe i just i'll just skim over the first edition of paradise <laughs> lost and move on to what should we move on to the paul nash what should we have <laughs> what the dust off it first. i love it um, yeah this is paul oh, nash oh i love this um, this is one of his um, woodcuts yeah uh, and there is a date on there 1922 it's so full of energy so full of fluency and movement and vigor and um the bl- the, the black and the white are zinging at you absolutely you can see trees there's a mountain in the background there's a um what's it called it's called it was it's called place. meeting place yeah so the water you can mm-hmm. see the suggestion of water the figure here and there's a figure there's a, the reclining figure there yeah um and uh it's the, I, ju- I just i just love it i think it's- i like prints because um, they are, as you've said yourself, a democratic form. Mm. Um, you know, this is an edition of whatever it is. I don't know how many. Uh, it wasn't. Too doesn't say edition of twenty-five. Twenty-five. Um, so you can share this with other people, and you know, it's the artist's own work because it's been signed in pencil, as you do with prints, and um, it's 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 a it's a finished. It's not a, it's not a reproduction. Mm. Mm. It's not a photograph of it that's been printed. It's it's the actual work itself mm-hmm. was designed to be this, to be this impression of black ink on white paper, like that, pressed down in a, in a press of some sort, and this is what it is. And do you think? I mean, Nash in particular, because you have a couple of Nashes, and I I think Nash is such an important paint, uh, mm. artist for so many reasons, but particularly the time period in which he's he's creating. I mean, this is interwar, so this is twenty two, but he documents war like nobody else but in this he's quite tranquil isn't he yeah tranquil but full of life life. um the his paintings um totes mer for example Mm. the extraordinary picture of crashed german aircraft and the the battle of britain pictures with all those contrails in the sky yeah um as well as his sort of semi-surrealist ones like um what's it called the one with the waves on the sea yeah and the landscape of the vernal equinox with a sort of sun um um, he was a he was a almost a bridge into European painting, bridge into surrealism, sort of. Because Auerbach was doing similar sorts of things around. You know, again, the trauma mm. of war creates mm. different yeah. different artistic responses. But yeah, you're right. Nash a- was also an important teacher. Yes. And um, several um, very fine English artists, British artists, were his pupils. Mm. Uh, so I I. I I like this very much. But I think the con- I think you're right. And, and again, one of the things I often do when, when I'm doing printing with, with students is to discuss the use of monochrome because mm. 
what is so fascinating when you look at something like a Dura, you've got a Goya. Should we have a look at the mm -hmm. Goya? Because Goya is going to illustrate this beautifully. Yeah. My favourite artist, Goya. Um, this is shaming me up because I love I know, look at the dust, honestly. It's we'll let you off. There's cobwebs on this one. Oh my God. Positively filthy. Oh, but um, dear, dear, I yeah. knew, I, I, was, I said to you earlier, I knew if there was going to be an artist that I associated with you, it would be Goya. <laughs> Dark. It's the darkness, but it's the Dark. the invention of the demon, and you know this mm. idea of an individual with the attributes around the individual. That's what Goya plays on so much, isn't it? Well, he's he's an illustrator of mysterious things. Yes. Um, I say illustrator; it sort of functions like because this is uh, there's a story happening here. Mm. Something's going on. This um, is from Capriccio's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the series. Because uh, for the listeners. Goya does these wonderful sequences of prints that are baffling, but they're, depending on their, their themes, what's this one say? Uh, etching, oh, and Acquitance, 1799, Plate 5 from Los Caprichos. And um, it would have been accompanied by, I think, I think how many are there in that? It was about 90 on. Oh, no, that, maybe that one's the shorter one. Maybe that's 25. 40? Yeah, 40. But he does these sequences. Um, he also paints, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this, I, I like this because of the mixture of textures there. It's yeah, etching exactly. and it's um, aquatint and dry point. So the whole mixture of things going on, which you can see, and the deep, dense black. I know, look at um, her dress, look yeah. at the lace on that dress. Um, and her hair is as black as yours. <laughs> and uh, and something's going on here. She's flirting with him or he's a mysterious seducer trying to... And the, she's wearing a mask, so yes. it's probably part of a you know, um, carnival time or something. That's great. And these two old... Um, crones there sitting commenting on the whole business so there's something mysterious going on that's what I, one of the things i like about goya you can't always tell what's happening no. something is happening but it's emerging out of a deep darkness and you're not sure what it is i mean even the way Probably he's put sinister. the male figure in so the aquatint there has, has mm. actually covered over the face mm. the highlighting is one well, if i'm i mean again we share this in terms of monochrome but where highlight falls where light whiteness falls mm. is often one of the most exciting things in an image and it's absolutely the case here that the whiteness is so selective and unexpected you know there's that slash of white that's coming down his leg there the toe peeping out which yep. is very again very alluring one of the things i would have talked about with corbet if we were looking at that painting mm. he's a great painter of dirty white yes he is um he? the snow in that particular picture in the ashmolean um, the uh, chalk of the white cliffs in some other paintings of someone's shirt covered in dust or a petticoat or um, the spray from the sea. A wonderful painter of compromised white. Mm. What a lovely Compromised term. by... <laughs> please use that. God, compromised free. white. That's perfect. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, compromised by dirt or dust or time or, mm. or shadow often or a grey sky. Um, he, he, wherever you look in Courbet, you'll see this. He, he loved that shadows on white. Mm, mm. And I think white, I mean, white is in, particularly intriguing in printmaking mm. because, of course, what you're doing, and again, it's only when you see the process of how prints are made, mm. but you're leaving blank space mm. and you're showing the material underneath as the whiteness. Mm. And again, it's, it's only when you see the true skill that goes into etching and aquatinting, the hatchings that create gradations of density. Yeah why something is slightly grey as opposed to black. It's because of the way that the ink is biting in different it's ways. It's a great contrast with the Paul Nash, which is stark black and stark white. Exactly. Here you can have all sorts of subtleties and, um, yeah. uh, and as you say, textures. But again, I mean, what I find so fascinating looking at it up close, the way that Goya is such a 
I, I think that artists who are making prints like Dura, like Goya, they have to think in a different way, don't oh, they? Yeah. They're not just applying paint to a canvas. Mm. They have to think in almost in terms of lines and mm. directions and, um, and you're, light. You're, 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 you're cutting out the white bits. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's um, a very good example of cutting out the white bits over there. Shall we have the brush? Oh, yes. Yes, because this is another one of your favourite artists, isn't it? You've got a couple. Yeah. Well, I love, I love um, the, early, the, the Cubists. Yeah. Brack is a, such a wonderful, wonderful um, painter. This is an odd chunk of plaster, really. It's one of the weirdest things you have. Yeah, it's quite unusual. <laughs> it's, so it's a, it's a piece of plaster. What are we talking about? What is that? 30 centimetres by 25-ish? Yes. It, but it's in relief. So you've mm. got it set into a big frame yeah. uh, behind glass. Yeah. Um, but it's very odd. So Well, it's it's a curious mixture of things. You, we can see as the light shines down on it, yeah. the, 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 the outline of the horse and the chariot and the rider are actually sort of laid on top of it. They are. It? Yeah. So I think what's, what we've got is that originally what he must have made was a cast etched in. Mm -hmm. And by pouring the plaster into the cast, it's created this relief. And then he's actually signed his name. Well, he's, you, can, you can see he's carved that out with a knife. But it's a wonderful layering of it. Kind of reminds me of Anglo-Saxon metalwork because you kind of got bits in relief, bits set back. Brock was a big influence on so on the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> you and your time shifting, I believe you. <laughs> but no. But the, what is wonderful is this. Um, it, it is so raw, isn't it? And the mm. bits that are coloured, yeah. printed, are. I don't know. There's such weird variation, isn't there? Look. Well, I love, I love the, um, I love those little unexpected bubbles and yeah. and, and the, the roughness of it. The, the, so you can see it's a physical thing, the <laughs> the, the, the actual texture of it. Um, I I love seeing the marks that painters or um, artists have made. Pencil marks on paper are yes. lovely things. Yes. I love making pencil dust. <laughs> That'll teach me. This is it. I'm going, I'm going to polish all of these before I leave. <laughs> but there's something here. Is that some sort of creature? The thing that was wonderful, of course, about Brock is, is you interpret it. Yeah. Yes. What, what is this bit? Yeah. What is that bit? Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's a chariot, presumably. Yeah. It's a chariot with what looks like two horses mm -hmm. um, who have three legs between them at the back. Um, and there's a figure in the chariot, but it's a, it's a very sort of attenuated, skinny, almost um, um, Giacometti-like figure there. I, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. That could yeah. be a flag, it could be someone's hair, it could be, who knows. See, I'm seeing ravens. Mm. We, ha we, are, we have ravens in common too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you have another brach as well, which is a more traditional print, isn't yes. it? We brought Where that one that? through too. Let me put that one back over. Okay. Gosh, this is just, it is a treasure trove, your house. It's amazing. Um, here's one I prepared earlier. Another <laughs> amazing <laughs> artwork coming yeah. out. And this, I think again, I, you know, I wrote my PhD thesis on bird symbolism. Yeah. Yes, I read that. <laughs> no, you didn't. I read it on Wikipedia. Good grief. I'm honoured. I can't believe it. Philip mm -hmm. Holman read my bird symbolism book. But yeah, so that's clearly a bird. But oh, sorry, I haven't read your bird symbolism. I read about it. Okay, I'll let you off. I'll send you the original. You can I read that. Really, yeah, I would love <laughs> but this is a wood print, a uh, wood block, isn't it? This is. Which uh, yeah. I know you like as this well. This is. Um, it's an aquatint. Oh, is it? That's what it says. Is it? Oh yeah, numbered aquatint. Mm. There's a picture of him well, here. Let me show him. that to the. So here it is, Brox. He's Sun. so he's signing it there, isn't he? Does it say? Yes, it is. Yeah. Sun. Metamorphosis. So part of the metamorphosis. Yeah. Um, 1958. Yeah. And it's a very simple, very simple thing, but lovely. The deep black and the pure white uh -huh. uh, Japanese paper. 
um, yeah. and it's set in this red um, mount, which flatters it. I, I like this red mount. Black, red and white. Mm. Can't go too wrong with those. Yeah. But I think what I love about it as well is the texture, because there is such thick application there. Yes. You, can, you, you always want to get behind the glass and touch it, don't you? It's got yeah. that, that density to it. Mm. But again, I think one of the things that, that appeals to me about printed books, about printed images like this, when you see how they're made, mm. so when you see the actual print make mechanism where it comes mm. down and presses into the paper, it's that physicality of it is so exciting. Did you see the Blake exhibition at the Ashmolean? I did not. Uh, they had a printed, they had a printing press there, and they were actually making prints from some of his original Blake. Good God! Yes. I can't believe I missed that. But no, mm. that, 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 I think there's that physicality that feels very creative. There is something about a painting where somebody has sat down for months and carefully, single-handedly mm. applied. And in a way, it appeals to me in the same way as a handwritten manuscript does, that one person has sat and penned yeah. it. But with prints, printed books, printed images, I said democratising, but there is also this, this creative strand that's being shared that I like about it, don't you think? Yeah. Um, I also like the fact that they're cheaper than paintings. <laughs> um, so I can afford these things, but um, I couldn't afford a painting by Brock, not, not, not ever. Yeah. Uh, but prints and drawings, um, they're such lovely things in themselves because you can see the way the mark was made. As you say, you can see the impression in the paper. Yeah. Um, you can see where the pencil line has been, you know, fudged a bit or whatever it is. Or the, the, the absolute precision with which John Selcottman in another drawing around the corner, draws the, the precise curve that the reeking would make in a wind. Um, the sheer skill of that, it's there, it's, it's still there in the paper. Yeah. Wonderful thing. It is. We can't stop, we can't finish without looking at your Picasso. All right. I think we need to do that, don't okay. you? That'll be... Um, and then I think we could, we, I mean, I, I probably will end up just sitting with you for hours talking about well, art and literature but for the sake of the poor listeners who are having to keep up yeah. with all the things we're looking at this is your Picasso and this is I think it's wonderful this um, is one of the one of the etchings from the Volar suite mm. Picasso did about I don't know 60, 50, 60 etchings for the um, art dealer Ambroise Volar um, which are exquisite pieces the etching is a very um a very revealing form. You've only got one very thin, very thin line, and it's got to be so perfect and so exact. And his line is flawless. Everything, everything. There's no, there's no sketchiness there. He didn't sort of try it again because it went wrong. It doesn't go wrong. He's Picasso. He doesn't go wrong. <laughs> um, the curve, the curve of the artist's nose there. The um, the way the eyes are done. The exactly the amount of hair he'd have on the top of his head. Um, <laughs> Everything is everything is perfect here. I, I, I love etchings because of this this need to be perfect. It's it's um, there's a wonderful Picasso which I know you all know, which is just a lady's bottom, <laughs> which is a line, a single line, and then another curve. Yeah. And it's I, I I remember talking about it with other art historians and just saying, what is it that makes an artist? And it is the ability to just take a line and make it so absolutely perfect mm. that in those two strokes, those two marks. Yep. You have an idea, an image, a symbol, a representation that nobody else can do. That's right. That's what makes the artist. And that's also a very good illustration of why art does not develop like science. The artists in the caves of Chauvet or Lascaux did exactly that. They had one line to do an outline of a bull, and they got it right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and we haven't improved on it. We, we can't improve on that. It's impossible. I think you're right. Um, I think we're going to have to stop talking for the purposes of this podcast. You and I will continue to talk at length. I no hope doubt. so. Yes, I hope so. But you have shared so much. And I'm so grateful. Well, I'm so glad that there was so much traffic in the Botley Road that I couldn't get to the Ashmolean Museum <laughs> and you had to come here. It's better. It's better. <laughs> Your house is a better museum in many ways and you're the best artifact in it. A better artifact. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you are such an inspiration to me and thank you for being so generous. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to share these pictures with you because um, I, do, I do love talking about them. I, I, love, I love looking at them. That's why, that's why, that's why we bought them. Oh, well, it's been wonderful. Art Detective listeners, if you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to the podcast. You can go to historyhit.com slash artdetective. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanine Ramirez. Philip is also on Twitter, aren't yeah. you? Yes. What are you on Twitter, Philip? Oh. That's right. Yeah. Just, just my name. That's it. Just your name. But it, it's an honour and a pleasure. And I know that there will be many, many people who will enjoy listening to your wonderful revelations. Well, I hope so. It's been a delight to talk to you. And if I'd known this was going to happen, I'd have dusted the frames of the paintings. <laughs> the dust added to the experience. <laughs> Books of dust coming. In Books fact. of dust. Thank you That's so right. much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Darius Aria. I'm a Roman archaeologist. I live in Rome, Italy. Every day I experience history. I excavate, I teach, I discover, I livestream. I was actually awarded Periscoper of the Year this year at the Shorty Awards, and I want to share all of that history with you. And now I have a brand new podcast. It's called Darius Aria Digs. It's available to download and listen to for free on iTunes. And you can also find the podcast, Darius Aria Digs, at historyhit.com slash Digs. I look forward to exploring history underneath the pavements of Rome, throughout Italy, and throughout the Mediterranean with you. Darius Aria Diggs is part of the History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit, Histories of the Unexpected, and Dr. Yanina Ramirez's Art Detective and more great shows. Listen and subscribe to Darius Aria Diggs and come and dig history with me. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.